Father, we, um, we do well to remember that there is no one like you, um, that you are seated on high and you look far down on the heavens and the earth, and you are gracious because you raise up the poor from the ash heap and make them to sit with princes, with the princes of your people. We are so grateful for your grace and your mercy towards us. Thank you, that you for your patience and your kindness and your forgiveness and your constant watch over us, our lives, over the details, both big and small. Father, we pray that you would feed our souls this morning with your truth. We pray that you would challenge us to be men and women of Christ, um, that we would stand for truth. We would do so humbly and in love. We pray that you would just fortify in our hearts a, a courage, a courage to walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, that we would have the courage not to be ashamed of the fact that we're followers of his, but that we would be bold and we would be willing to fight the good fight as Paul fought and as many have fought before us. Lord, strengthen us uh, through your word, by your spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So I have a lot of uh, plants in my backyard, and um, for those of you who have a lot of plants in your backyard, I don't know how you feel about doing landscaping, but sometimes it feels like you're going to war against your plants. Some of them are easy to man manage because they grow slow, and, and others, quite frankly, it, it feels like I'm, I'm, I'm battling. Um, one in particular, I actually have two, two battles that I've been fighting in my yard. Uh, one is with a variation of the morning flower. It's a vine that moves, uh, very, grows very quickly, and it's made its way through my box hedges and through uh, my bird of paradise and through my pomegranate tree, and, and it grows so fast. And I constantly yank it. I have sprayed it, but the fact of the matter is, is the roots reside on my neighbor's side of the yard. So it just keeps growing back over and over and over again, and so far it's been a war that I have not been able to win. But then I planted something in my yard that was my doing, and that was how we planted bamboo years ago. <laughs> I know, you're thinking, wow, you're stupid, Dan. <laughs> well, that's not how I saw it. I, you know, uh, we wanted, you know, some visual barriers from our back neighbors who can look right into our yard. And so I went to the guru of bamboo dealers, and, and he was up in Vacville, he says, and he took me to his house. He had bamboo growing everywhere. Uh, I don't know how many different species of bamboo, but lots of bamboo. He said, listen, what you need to grow is not running bamboo, which goes really fast all over your yard, but you need to, 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 to plant clumping bamboo. It grows much slower and is easier to maintain. Okay, so I think we planted like four huge sections of clumping bamboo. What he didn't tell me was that clumping bamboo, though it grows slower on a horizontal level, it grows super fast vertically, and as it grows, it exerts tremendous force against whatever it pushes against. So my back fence and the chain link fence behind it, it completely destroyed my neighbor's chain link fence. So it's, you know. Now I got a problem with my neighbor, and my neighbors are great, and they've been very kind to me, but they also created this, like, concrete root system, so that it's, getting it out of my backyard was literally like trying to chop cement. Well, we went to war with that, and I, I, th I think we won. We eradicated it, put up a new fence and all that stuff, um, but we'll see when you know, when it starts to rain, <laughs> the bamboo comes back. Waging war in my backyard, that's pretty benign talking about plants. 
it's a little bit different when you're talking about something that's lethal, like a battle with a malignant cancer. You go to the doctor, you go to the surgeon, and you have the tumor removed. And what you don't want to hear is, we got 90%. Because that means 10% still there. And that 10% will grow back. No, you want to hear, we got it all. Your margins are clear. You're good. You don't want cancer remaining in your, your body. We're going to talk about something um, this morning that is, in many respects, far more lethal eternally than even cancer. I mean, cancer ravages the body, but um, we're, we're told in the Christian life that when you signed up, and it's not really you signed up, really you bow the knee, that you have been brought into a battle, a fight, a war. And it's not just your body that's at risk here. It's, it's, it's your, your soul. So we read, for example... In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, talking about the inner battle that wages in here, he said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which is the sin that still remains in every one of us, which wage war against your soul. It wages war, not just against your body. It wages war against your soul, that immaterial part of you that lasts forever. That is a battle we must fight. A battle we must fight as exiles and sojourners, people who are different than the world around us. There's not only a battle inside, but of course there's a battle that rages outside, and it's, it's not against humans, per se. It's about something that moves in society that is far more sinister and powerful, and Paul talked about this in Ephesians. He said, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. He recognized that in the world around him, he was just seeing the fleshly face of something that was satanic, something that was dark, something that was powerful, against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I'm fully convinced that much of what we see it has something evil behind it that's going on around. We are church at war. We are wrestling against things we can't even see. So whether you knew it or not, when you bowed the knee to Christ and said, I want to follow you, you entered a war. You entered a battle. Now, the book of Judges opens up with a record of battle and the waging of war. Now, as was read, Moses, when he led the people out of Egypt, brought them to the edge of the promised land, but he was precluded from going in to the land of Canaan. So he sent in, he commissioned his right-hand man, Joshua. And Joshua, of course, was a man of God. He trusted God. And he led the war, the campaign against the people of Canaan. And he did so for two primary reasons. One, as an act of judgment. That is, they were to conquer the land of Canaan as an act of judgment. God uses and did use nations to punish other nations in the way that I think perhaps we could say God used the allies to punish the Nazis. So part of it was judgment. The other part was he was going to leave, leave, lead them into the, the, the land that was a gift, the, the promised land flowing with milk and honey. It was kind of a picture of Eden reborn and a picture of what we still look forward to to this day. So it was an act of judgment, but also it was a gift, a, a, a reward for them. Well, Joshua didn't 
conquer everything. He got old, and he eventually died at the, year, at the age of 110. And he left it to the next generation to finish the job. That's where we enter into the book of Judges. We get to see how the next generation did in fulfilling what God commanded his people to do. Now, let me just tell you how I'm going to move through this so you can follow mentally. I want to first just uh, like explain the text or let's understand it and then apply it. Those are kind of two parts, understanding and, uh, and applying it. In understanding it, the first part, basically there's three parts to this first section. It begins in verse 1 and goes to chapter 2, verse 5. It begins with a divine commission and it ends with a divine evaluation. And in between, we're given a record of how each tribe did. So those are kind of three parts of this section. The main point at the end, if I can just come out with it, is basically we're talking about a, a mission failure. A mission failure. So this is the commission. This is what God commands them to do. Verses 1 and 2. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So Judah was supposed to be the first. The others would follow. And he was to fight against the enemy. And the implication is that God would fight with them, as Joshua said. Your God will fight for you. It's not just you and your armies, your swords, and your pitchforks and and torches. It's God's going to fight for you. You have to be confident in that. But then notice he says, I have given the land into his hand. This is a gift. God is the creator of the world. He owns all the real estate. It's his to give to who he wants. It once belonged to the Canaanites, and now guess what? It's going to belong to Israel as a gift and as a picture of the new creation to come. So Judah is supposed to go first. Basically, God is saying, take the hill, storm the beaches of Normandy, and do your job. That's what he's saying. But as a side note, I want you to notice that Judah is given first place. Not only is Judah the first to go up, he's not even the oldest brother, and by the way, when it says Judah, it's talking about the tribe of Judah, Um, but he's given 20 verses, more than half the chapter is devoted to his military exploits, or their military exploits, and it would seem, based upon the text, that they did the best, but they didn't finish. So that's this commission to go ahead and Finish what Joshua started. Fight the battle to the very end. So that's the commission. Pretty clear. So how did they do? Beginning in verse 3, we're given basically a, a record of how well they did. So Judah. Oh, and by the way, I think one of the reasons Judah is first is you're already sensing the primacy of Judah. The first judge would be from Judah. King David would come from the line of Judah. Solomon would come from the line of Judah. And ultimately, the lion from the tribe of Judah, that is Jesus Christ, would come. The king. I think that's what's the flow. So how did they do? Judah first. After all of the positives, we read in verse 19, And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but... He could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. I'll come back to that in a second. But basically, they didn't 
make it all the way. It's like taking out 90% of the cancer, 10% remaining. So that's Judah. How did the other tribes do? Well, and you'll notice the tribes are mentioned in bold. The people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshon and its villages. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites lived among them. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan, that is the tribe of Dan, back into the hill country. They didn't even get a land of their own. They were pressed backwards. According to the list, no one was successful all the way. None of them drove out the Canaanites. And the result was they lived among them. It's, it's, from what we know of Canaanite culture, it was toxic. It was corrupt, notoriously brutal in offering their children in the fire. God was, in effect, wiping out cancer. Now cancer remained. So I want you to notice, though, that there are these little anecdotes that are woven in, right? And I don't have time to go into what all of them mean, but they amplify the failure. That is, they show compromise. So let's just look at a couple of them, and I want you to notice something. You probably already know this, but, you know, Scripture does not waste words. Words always have something to contribute. Anecdotes have something to contribute, sometimes by way of contrast. One of those is this interesting, (laughs) the first enemy that's mentioned by name is a king by the name of Adonai Bezek. Adonai meaning Lord, Lord Bezek. And uh, the people of Judah, the tribe of Judah, defeat his army. 10,000 are lost. And they capture this king. And of all things, look what it says. It says, and they cut off his thumbs and his, his big toes. It just kind of sounds weird to an American in the 21st century. It's like, can't hitchhike anymore, gonna have a hard time holding coffee and have a hard time opening doors with no thumbs. And then he responds, and Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, in other words, as I have trimmed the thumbs and the big toes of 70 other kings, so now it's happening to me. You cut off the thumbs, you can't hold a sword, you can't hold a bow. Cut off somebody's big toes, it's hard to run, very hard to exert force, as if having a shield in front of you, you can't push in the same way. You basically demilitarize a man by cutting off his thumbs and toes. So why is this here? It would seem or suggest that here you have the people of Israel mutilating their enemy in the same way the Canaanites mutilate their enemies. Already you see an adoption of tactics early on that are Canaanite, suggesting there's already, the Canaanite culture is already rubbing off on the way they do war. Now we're going to cut off thumbs and toes. That's one little, little anecdote that's woven in. And here's a second one. This is, I think, even more important. In terms of Judah's failure, there's a contrast or a foil, they call it. 
Verse 19, it says the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had iron or chariots of iron. And then in verse 20, you have like a, a flashback. Because then it goes back a generation, and, and Hebron was given to Caleb. Caleb was a contemporary with Joshua, who's already dead. So why are you going back in time at this point? This flashback, he talks about Caleb, as Moses had said, and he, that is Caleb, drove out from it the three sons of Anak. Do a little study on that sometime, the three sons of Anak, because they were notorious. They were the giants that the people were afraid of when they first did their incursion into the land and said, we can't take it. They're too big. They're too powerful. The sons of Anak were notorious warriors. Everyone's afraid of them. Yet Caleb, he understood the battle belongs to the Lord, not to me. And he drove these three sons of Anak out in a display of God's power. So why, why the flashback? Why this comparison? I think it's to say that Judah failed because they were walking by sight, not by faith. They saw the chariots of iron and said, we can't take it. And next verse, it just says, guess what? Guess who took out the three sons of Anak? Caleb. Why? Because he trusted that God was fighting on behalf of his people. And he routed these three notorious sons of Anak. So it just establishes the fact that they failed because they didn't have faith. They didn't trust the Lord on the battlefield. And then the third one, you have verse 22, the house of Joseph. Again, a little anecdote woven in to amplify failure and also to show compromise. Canaanite culture was already rubbing off on them. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel, parenthesis. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. That is its Canaanite name. Okay, keep that in mind. This is kind of interesting. So they're going to scout out Bethel, which used to be go by the Canaanite uh, the name Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city that is a Canaanite man. And they said to him, please show us the way into the city and we will deal kindly with you. They're forming an agreement with the Canaanite here. Hey, show us the way into the city so we can destroy it and we'll let you live. This is a covenant of sorts which was strictly forbidden. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built the city and called its name Luz. So they form an agreement with this Canaanite, and as a result, they destroy a city, and this Canaanite goes somewhere else and plants the same city with the same name. So you got rid of cancer in one place, it just grew somewhere else. Again, showing subtle compromises. We're already making alliances with the Canaanites. These are subtle ways in which the narrative, the text, show us the compromise, amplify the failure, and show that they're already accommodating themselves to the Canaanite ways. So, divine, or excuse me, mission fail. Then in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2, we get the divine evaluation. Verse 1, now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham. Now, note, footnote, Gilgal was a place where the people of Israel gathered with Joshua and recommitted themselves to the covenant of God. So the fact that the angel comes up from Gilgal is, is significant in the sense that it's reminding them of the covenant that they made with the Lord. 
And he said, this is the Lord, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. This kind of gives you the, 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 the behind the scenes of why they failed. And in addressing the failure of his people, I want you to notice something extremely important for us. He starts by reminding them of the gospel. You're like, gospel? That's, that's New Testament. No, it's gospel all the way through the Bible. He reminds them, I brought you up from Egypt. And in so doing, brought the most powerful nation to its knees and its chariots at the bottom of the sea. I did that. You didn't do that. All you had to do is stand and be silent. That's all you had to do. And I'm the one who, who brought you into the land. I hand-delivered you into your homeland because I swore. God says, I swore that I would do so. And I won't break covenant with you. That's all good news. And none of it because Israel was fundamentally better than other nations or it was more righteous than other nations or smarter than other nations. Actually, God knew who they were. He called them stiff-necked. You're stubborn as a mule. I saved you anyway. Reminding us that salvation has always been by grace alone. Always. So in introducing this, he says, remember what I've done for you. The implication being, if I can bring down Egypt, taking down some iron chariots from some Canaanites is a walk in the park for me. So he reminds them of, of the gospel. All he's done graciously and mercifully on their behalf. Something they forgot and didn't remember. And as a result, didn't believe and gave in to fear. But then he talks about the demands of the gospel. Or should I say the call of the gospel? When he says, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars. Basically, he's saying, I don't want the kind of connections that are going to spoil our relationship. That you're going to give into, cave into. You know, the whole idea about bad company corrupts good morals. And yet, you'll marry them, as we will find. And here you've already established some alliances and covenants with them. This is to protect the integrity of God's relationship with his people in the same way that a married couple needs to protect the integrity of their marriage by doing some things and not doing other things. And they're supposed to destroy their altars. They don't have nothing to do with their pagan religion. Just completely destroy it. Because you're going to be tempted by it. You're going to be seduced by it. And you're going to give in and compromise to it. And then our, our relationship is going to be torn. But notice, God says, I won't break covenant with you, even if you break it with me. That's the wonder of the story of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Is God never gave up on his people because he swore. I'm so glad he did. <laughs> he swore. He promised. You say, we don't, we don't have the same demands in the New Covenant, do we? It's like... Yes, we do. We know that salvation is by grace alone. 
You know, by grace alone you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. This is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We know that salvation is by grace alone, but there is also a call to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now you're supposed to walk like my people. You're supposed to walk like you actually have a real relationship with me. So you have the same kind of affirmations in the New Testament for us. It's like, do not love the world or the things of, in the world. Now, when John uses the word world, he, it has a sense of darkness, of lostness. You don't want to love the darkness. Don't love the lostness of the world. And we're surrounded by lostness. If anyone loves the world, the, father, the love of the Father is not in him. It's like, you can be in the world, and we are in the world. But don't be of the world. Don't belong to it with all of its values and what it worships. Stay disconnected spiritually from the world around you. And then Paul, therefore, my beloved, flee, flee from idolatry. Flee from it. Run away from it. Don't have anything to do with it. You worship one God. So we have the same demands of the gospel, the same call to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus. And I hope we hear that. This needs to be preached, taught, read, meditated on by all of us, including myself, to know I need to not love the darkness of the world as it creeps in to our families and school systems. And then you'll notice the result of failing to separate from the world or the Canaanites. He says, so now I say I will not drive them out before you. They're going to become thorns in your side and snares. Thorns cause pain and snares trap. You'll find when you accommodate to the world, you'll experience pain in your life, and you'll find yourself trapped and enslaved by it. That's the divine evaluation. I, just, I want you to understand, though, that they failed in their mission, not just because they disobeyed. They did. They disobeyed because they disbelieved who God was. So that's, that's what the text means, the point. Again, mission failure. They didn't fulfill the commission. They didn't take it all the way, well, 90%. And here's the divine evaluation. Now, what do, what do we take away from this? Well, I've said everything in the negative so far. <laughs> so let me flip it in the positive. If you want to engage in battle in your life, and we are at war, in your heart as well as in the world, as we wrestle against principalities and powers, it's going to require us first and foremost to go back to the beginning of what God addressed at the beginning of, of verse 1, when he says, I brought you up out of Egypt. That is, the power for battle flows from, the from a gospel-immersed life. A gospel about what God has done, who, his power and his grace, and, and the fact that he's with us until the end of the age. What the, what the people of Egypt, or excuse me, the people of Israel, as they were making their way into these parts of Canaan, what they should have been done was just immersing themselves in the, I brought you up from Egypt. Let's just think about that, guys, before we run away from the chariots of iron. Like, remember what God did at the edge of the sea, the Red Sea, when all of the, all of the, the Pharaoh's chariots were like storming down the mountain? And God just basically say, hey, Moses, can you wave your, your staff over the ocean or over the sea? That's all he had to do. There was no swords. There was no flying arrows, nothing. 
God brought us up. He separated the waters, and then he crushed them. Chariots are nothing for the Lord. If they had just stopped and meditated on their gospel, I brought you up out of Egypt. I swore to you. I hand delivered. I'm always going to do that for you. We have a fuller gospel. Man, the one that we worship, Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, when he went into Jerusalem riding on that colt, he faced every enemy possible. The wrath of man, betrayal of friends, abandonment, Roman authorities, Jewish authorities, kingly authorities, and of course, the wrath of God himself. And guess what? He didn't go 90% of the way. He didn't go 95% of the way. He crossed the finish line. He fought the battle and won for every one of us. This uh, reminds me of Roman, or excuse me, Revelation 5, 5, where it says, weep no more, for the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And he conquered so that our sins could be covered and conquered so we could be resurrected and given life. That's our gospel. What God has done for us when we didn't deserve it. And reasons we don't have to fear and we can find strength and courage to actually obey him. Even when the world says you're stupid for being a Christian. Instead of being a Christian who fears about the the mass power of modern media to control narratives. Oh, they have the control and the power. Or the influence of culture or politics to remember that we have a king who can stop a storm with words. He can send a legion of demons into the sea. One day he'll come back and he will, he will wage war on this world with his words. And he can raise the dead to life again. When you meditate on who he is and what he's done, guess what happens? Fear drains away and faith is fed. Fear drains away and faith is fed. And that's what we need. We don't need to be fearful Christians. We need to be gospel-immersed Christians so that we can walk in a sense of courage and boldness and not ashamed to say, I'm a follower of Jesus. And I don't really care what you think about that. The second thing I think we can take away from this is just the connection between faith and obedience. If we trust God, in particular, by immersing ourselves in the gospel, who he is, what he's done, what he said, what he promised, then obedience will flow as a necessary fruit of that faith. Anytime you find that someone breaks the necessity of obedience from real faith, we have a problem. Faith is not an op- or excuse me, obedience is not an option. If you really believe God and his promises and his grace, then you're going to see, find yourself growing in obedience, rooted in the gospel. So, in the fight of faith, for, let's say, holiness. God said, be holy as I am holy. That, that, is a, that is a fight that we will do to the end of life, either until we die or until Jesus comes back, to fight for personal holiness in life. 
Jesus says, be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. And we're never going to reach that in this life, but we're supposed to make progress. We're supposed to fight the fight of faith to see Christ formed in our lives. So, for example, when Jesus commands, as an outworking of the gospel, forgive. As my Father has forgiven you. That means we have an, uh, 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 a responsibility to forgive. That's part of the obedience, the outworking of your faith. Because you've been forgiven so much more. So when a person or a Christian says, well, I can't forgive. I can't forgive because the offense was too deep, too hard. Are you really saying I can't? Or I won't? And doesn't that reflect that maybe you haven't immersed yourself in the gospel enough to know that Jesus died to forgive you of every single sin and you're holding one sin over somebody else? Obedience is an outworking of real faith. And that's true in marriage and parenting and pretty much everything that Jesus calls us to, to do so distinctively as Christian people, as followers of Jesus, humbly, lovingly, but obediently. And I think there's a special application of this for people who've been in the faith for a while. You know, I don't know about your experience in the Christian life, but, you know, the early stages of when I really, really came back to the Lord, life changed rapidly. A lot of things. There were breakups, and it was like a lot of the wreckage was left behind. But the longer you go in the Christian life, it's like the changes become smaller and more incremental, like polishing granite, you know, you start really rough and then you finally fine tune it. I think sometimes it's easy as Christians to do what the Israelites did and go 90% of the way. Okay, I'm far enough. I'm not doing anything horrible. I'm pretty, I'm, 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 I'm doing all right. And you stopped the fight. The fight against sin within. And then also the fight for the gospel without. We're engaged in a war, in a battle. For the souls, hearts, and futures of men and women, neighbors. And we have the only thing that can set them free. And it's not a sword of steel. It's the word of the Lord. It's the gospel itself. And to be able to be Christians that have courage, rooted in the gospel, to be able to love, live, and declare the supremacy of who Jesus is. That is waging war in our time. And the devil does not like it. He knows his time is short. He knows that Jesus has already won the war. But he's called us into the ministry of wrestling against principalities and powers. And how do we do it? We do it by faith, by the spirit of the living God, and using his gospel in life and with lips. Church, we're, we're, we're in a battle, and I think all of us in this room need to be reminded of that. We are at war and we have to fight the good fight of faith. We have to keep the faith to the end, and we have to finish the race by the grace of God. So I, I, I want, as we come to the communion table this morning, and this is really where Jesus ended his battle, right? Is giving his life for us, his bread and cup, his body and blood. And just to... just. Analyze your own heart. It's like, hey, have I only gone 90% of the way? And am I coasting now? Am I engaged personally in my own life with trying to be conformed to the image of Jesus? Am I, am I serious about 
my Christian faith and being able to be vocal about it. So as you come, just, just reflect on these things. And, of course, our God has a huge heart of mercy and grace. And he's ready and willing at all times to just renew. And that's, let's, let's do that together as a, as a church. Just, are we in the fight? I'm going to pray. And as I do, if I can have those who are serving communion come forward. Uh, we have gluten and gluten-free. You just need to ask for it. And then if you're a follower of Jesus, you can come up and, and take it. It's easiest if we have two lines, two lines. Avoid some kind of traffic jam, but um, let's do this together and let's, let's just do some introspection. Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness. Thank you that you're always quick to be merciful and loving, and we just thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. I just pray for your church here in the United States, in particular in California, and just ask God that you would raise up a generation of people who love you and, and are courageous about their faith and you would just renew and revive your people in Christ's name. Amen.